Hey y'all, Angelique Carson here, your trusty host. I'm coming to you from the coast of Maine currently. If you listen to my last podcast back when I was doing the Privacy Advisor a few years ago, you know that I'm a very sweaty person and miserable in any kind of heat. In D.C., where I, for some reason, still live, the mayor has declared a heat emergency, which sounds worse than it is, even though, let me tell you, it's terrible, because we have a few of them every single summer. They call it the swamp for more than one reason. Anyway, cool as a cuke, working from my mom's porch. My lips taste like the ocean after I've been out here for a couple hours. It's the actual best. But you're not here to hear about my heat intolerance policies. Here's the game plan. I'm going to give myself less than four minutes to tell you what's up in the news this week, and then we're going to get into the show, which I have to tell you, this week is absolutely delicious. It's exactly the conversation I was hoping we'd have. I'll tell you more about that in one second. First, a housekeeping situation. I'm mortified because I called a guest by the wrong name on the last podcast, which by the way is a great podcast. If you haven't listened to it, go check it out. The one on Dobbs. Hannah Poteet at Twilio is a love and agreed to come on the show and talk about the dumpster fire we now know as the Dobbs decision. And I decided for some reason to call her Heather during my intro. As someone who's frequently called Angela or Angelica or Angel, I'm aware of how annoying it is to be mislabeled. And the only thing Hannah and Heather have in common is they both start with H. So I wasn't even close. I was moving too quickly. But I wanted to just issue a public apology here. Hannah, it won't happen again. On to the news. Chris, my wonderful sound engineer, also residing in the beautiful state of Maine. Please start my timer to keep me honest now. In a story called When Data Privacy Became a Startup's Nightmare, the Washington Post is reporting on what it calls the minefield of India's digital laws. Last week, an eight-year-old startup called RazorPay made news when it was revealed it had been forced to supply police with customer data in an investigation against AltNews, which is a fact-checking website. AltNews used RazorPay to receive donations for its cause, but Indian law allowed police to demand that RazorPay share phone numbers, IP addresses, and the payment methods used for alt-news transactions. Police obtained the data under India's criminal procedure code, but some say the situation indicates that India desperately needs a comprehensive privacy law, especially given the huge number of data-based companies headquartered in the country. Next, the New York Times reports that in a post-row world, quote, the future of digital privacy looks even grimmer. I thought the opening line of this story was pretty baller. It states, quote, Welcome to the post-row era of digital privacy, a moment that underscores how the use of technology has made it practically impossible for Americans to evade ubiquitous tracking, end quote. It goes on to report on a new reality. American women seeking abortions but living in states that have banned them now may have to go through a laundry list of steps to try and avoid surveillance as they move. That could include things like a burner email address or quote, connecting to the internet through an encrypted tunnel, end quote, in an attempt to avoid prosecution. But, reports the New York Times, they could still be tracked if law enforcement agencies chose to get court orders to access location data logged by phone networks or, or for police to use license plate readers to track movement. It's a thing they already do. Relatedly, reports The Verge, the Federal Trade Commission, Commission <laughs> permission. The Federal Trade Commission says it will step up to protect consumer privacy in post-Roe America. 
declaring the agency is, quote, committed to fully enforcing the law, end quote, against illegal sharing of sensitive medical and location data. In a blog post this week, the commission took particular aim at data brokers and third parties who share previously collected information, and the, the agency highlighted the risk that combining health data and location data can present to consumers. Routers reported this week that TikTok has suspended changes to its privacy policy for targeted advertising. Uh, that happened a day before uh, the European Union. <laughs> that happened a day before the lead European Union regulator was to look at whether those uh, new rules comply with the bloc's data protection rules. Italy's data protection authority had sounded an initial alarm, saying that Chinese-owned TikTok had told users of the video app that it was going to deliver targeted advertising to them from July 13 without requesting consent for using data stored on their devices. Finally, Vox reports that Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey said on Wednesday, um, which was also during Amazon Prime Day event, that Amazon has admitted to sending footage to police without a court order or user's permission 11 times this year alone. While that number is relatively small, the story says this is also the first time the company has said that it released data this way, according to Politico. Uh, Markey has been concerned about Ring's partnerships with law enforcement and privacy issues for years. Markey said, quote, as my ongoing investigation into Amazon illustrates, it has become increasingly difficult for the public to move, assemble, and converse in public without being tracked and recorded. He said that in a statement. Even scarier than Markey's statement is that he's not off base. Since Amazon started cooperating with the police, with police departments on Ring footage, um, there were 405 departments within the program in August 2019. There are now 2,161 police departments getting data from Amazon based on ring footage when it needs to to solve crimes. Okay, I think I did that in under four minutes. We'll find out. On to today's show. For years, I've been saying absolutely not whenever someone asks me, is this shit the year for federal privacy legislation? And it was easy to be right because, you know, Congress. But when I saw people with some inside baseball knowledge start blowing on their proverbial kazoos over this American Data Privacy and Protection Act, I knew it was time to pay attention. In this chat, Goodwin Proctor's Omer Tene, Brookings Institution's Cam Carey, and Wilson Sonsini's Manisha Mithal, who was formerly at the FTC, so knows all sorts of FTC inside baseball stuff. Uh, they talk about why this bill has a fighting chance and why, even if this one doesn't go, the bones of it will likely remain in future iterations. So this is kind of what we're looking at. Hey, finally, if you like the show, I'd so, 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 so appreciate it if you'd rate it or review it on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. And like, not to get greedy with my asks, but if you're down to share this on your social networks, I'm relying on word of mouth uh, to get this thing off the ground. And I want to keep going with it. We're doing well so far. I want to grow it. I'm growing this thing from the ground up and I'd love your help to keep it going. Thanks for all the kind words you've sent so far. You're so kind. Talk soon. Love you. Super excited to have three of you here, Rockstar cast. Uh, I'm absolutely thrilled. Let's start with you, Cam, because um, you know one of the reasons, among many others, that I'm so excited for you to be here is you've been working towards this maybe moment uh, for so so long. Can you give us just a little, you know, a high level look 
at how did we get here to this place where we now have this uh, bipartisan, bicameral uh, privacy bill in front of us? Well, I'm, yeah, well, you know, 10 years ago, uh, when I was looking for partners uh, to sponsor the the Obama administration consumer privacy bill of rights, um, I couldn't find any. But uh, we've seen a volcanic uh, explosion erupt, I think, with, with Cambridge Analytica, but I think really building over a period of time as, as you know, with data breaches, Snowden, other things, uh, people were just realizing how much more data is collected about them. And, and I think, you know, members of Congress responding to that. Um, but that really kicked off a serious process of legislating. You know, we had various uh, working groups, lots of hearings, um, uh, and really, members of Congress doing the kind of of hard job of legislating, learning the issues, uh, talking to stakeholders. That's that's pretty rare these days, um, and a lot of efforts towards towards bipartisan uh, legislation. Um, you know, that's been a sort of on again, off again process. Uh, um, hopefully, we are uh, you know, we are kind of on again there, um, but you know there are uh, there are still disagreements. But you know what what really I think coalesced the things. If we go back uh, a year ago, uh, um, going on uh, we had the Facebook uh, papers and Francis Haugen, which really I think gave a kind of burst of new momentum and real effort. To, on the part of of you know, leaders in the Senate, in the House, uh, to reach a bipartisan agreement. Obviously, we've got now three corners. Um, we need the fourth corner, but uh, I, you know, I do see uh, the gaps narrowing. Manisha. Uh, yeah, and I, I agree with everything Cam said. And the one thing I would add to this groundswell of, of support that's coming on, on privacy legislation is the role of California in this process. And so I think that uh, with the passage of the uh, California Consumer Privacy Act, uh, I think there were a lot of businesses that were concerned about the fragmented nature of potential privacy legislation at the state level. And so I, I think a few years ago, we really saw industry support um, coalesce much more strongly than it had in the past. So I think that's another factor that contributes towards this groundswell support for federal privacy legislation. Yeah, and and I think the EU's GDPR uh, was it was another factor. I mean, you know, the, the 2018 uh, and Cambridge Analytica coincided with that going into effect, and all of those notices and all of that. You, know, you started getting GDPR envy uh, in the United States. How come you know we're we're not protected? And you had all those members of Congress asking Mark Zuckerberg, you know, what are you doing about compliance with Article this and Article that? A, you know, a, a real sea change in understanding. Um, and at the same time, you know, companies you know, having to do global compliance programs. Uh, that, that, I think, changed the business outlook, too. I'll note that uh, BIPA, Illinois' biometric privacy law, uh, has a very broad private right of action. Um, what's obviously unique, and we'll talk about it, um, I guess, in a couple of minutes about this federal law, 
is that it has a private right of action which has been agreed to by both House and Senate Republicans. I think this is a, just in and of itself, it's a remarkable achievement that, you know, somebody who would have told me this would be the case a couple of years ago, I would think, um, you know, they're very optimistic. Um, the special thing, as Cam said about this one, we've seen previous attempts and drafts and bills and uh, discussions and committees, but this has three corner support from from leadership in both the House and the Senate, uh, Republicans and you know bicameral and Democrats in the House for now. Um, so I think if this week it manages to get out of committee, um, and we think there might be a markup session in the uh, Energy and Commerce Committee in the House this week, um, if it sort of makes its way to the floor, there will be tremendous pressure, I think, on Senate Democrats to uh, join the ranks. Um, I think what weighs against all this right now is just a very short uh, political timeline. We are recording this July 11th, you know, August vacation is just around the corner. They come back, it's an election season, everybody will have their hands full with that, you know, certainly you know, all members of the House and a lot of the senators. So um, there just isn't a lot of time to get this done before the uh, midterm. Manisha, can we talk a little bit about the bill itself? What are some of the surprises for you when you're reading through this? Anything you didn't expect? Yeah, I, I think there are a couple of things that I'd like to mention. I think the first is that everybody's been waiting with bated breath to see what the compromise is going to be on preemption and private right of action. Uh, as Omar alluded to, that's been the kind of sticking point for the uh, legislation for many years now. Um, and I think there's some interesting and surprising things in the compromise. We see that uh, it looks like the Republicans got uh, preemption generally, preemption of state law, other than a few laws like BIPA, um, the Biometric Information Privacy Act. Um, we saw the Democrats get some something on the um, uh, pre, uh, on the private right of action issue. And I did think that the uh, private right of action compromise was fairly creative. The data broker registry I found quite surprising. Uh, not just the fact that they're creating a data broker registry, but they're essentially creating a centralized opt-out of data brokers. That was something when I was at the FTC and we had done the data broker report, uh, industry had fought very hard against that. Um, so that's something I'm surprised to find in this version of the bill. Um, and then the last thing I would mention is, again, there are kind of hidden things in here. So one example is um, just a general prohibition on deception uh, involving any practices, not just privacy. So whether it's advertising or financial practices, there's a general prohibition on deception, and that would come with civil penalties. And that's something, again, if you had asked me 10, 20 years ago, I would have said there's no way that Congress would do that. Um, but it's something that slipped into this bill. So those are just a couple of things I would mention. Omar, thoughts on that? Yeah, just to jump on Manisha's points here, um, I think there are, you know, and I'm really curious to hear what Cam thinks about this because he's the, the expert, but on those twin issues which have been the sticking points, the 
private right of action and preemption, I think there has been tremendous sort of give and compromise on both sides. The the uh, Democrats basically gave California, and it's a huge deal, especially in the House, given that, you know, the, the Democrats' California delegation is, uh, of course, very large and has um, great power in the House side. And the fact that they basically allowed this bill to uh, uh, preempt uh, laws that were passed directly by their constituents uh, through a ballot initiative, I think is very meaningful. Um, On the other hand, like I said earlier, the fact that you have a bill with support of Republican leadership in both the House and the Senate for a private right of action, albeit with uh, certain limitations that Manisha uh, mentioned. I would add another one. This has to go to federal courts uh, as opposed to state courts. And, of course, federal courts have uh, pretty strict limits on standing. And we've seen that play out in the privacy space um, already um, so you think, Omer, if, if when people do bring private rights, it'll be pretty hard to get it th- past that harm threshold? Well, it's they'll ha- they'll have to get it through the harm threshold, and I think uh, uh, Senator Cantwell has concerns about that. And of course, what seems to be her main concern right now are those binding arbitration clauses that. Anisha mentioned uh, the three corners bill would uh, uh, set them aside just with respect to rights of individuals under the age of 18. I think she wants kind of uh, a broader um, preemption of those clauses. Um, You know, I think it would be unfortunate if this entire sort of structure, which, as I said, shows a lot of compromise from both sides, would collapse around mandatory arbitration. I would just add my two cents of surprises to this. I think the, the biggest surprise for me is the private right of action. The uh, chamber came out very strongly against it, and, you know, they wield a lot of weight, uh, especially on the Republican side. So that's, I think, an impressive achievement. Uh, There are provisions on civil rights in this law. This was, uh, I think, another win for the Democrats, and they're quite strict, including some innovative concepts which we haven't seen anywhere in the world, like uh, algorithm impact assessments for civil rights impacts. And then the duty of loyalty, which uh, Senator Schatz and Cantwell have been pushing from the Senate Democrat side, uh, found its way into the bill only as a headline at this point, but it does kind of land in very strict data minimization requirements. So I think that, too, is um, surprising. I want to turn to Cam for reactions, but I I was just thinking when you were saying that you're surprised uh, that they gave up California for preemption because I'm just thinking about Alistair McTaggart, and I have to imagine there were some angry emails that got sent to people in that legislature like, come on, I get two, I gave you two, I gave you two laws. Uh, Cam, reactions to that? Oh, I'm, surprise look, I, 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 I guess I'm not entirely surprised uh, by this, having just 
uh, put a lot of work uh, a couple of years ago into the report we did at Brookings and kind of framing uh, the grand bargain and some of the ways that that the gaps between uh, what was then the Wicker Bill and the Cantwell Bill could could be narrowed and and you know, I think that the sort of the way the jigsaw it gets cut uh, on preemption um, uh, the scope of the private right uh, and, and you know some of the the accompanying. Speed bumps, uh, they're a little different from what we proposed, but I think conceptually uh, very similar to, to, to that. What I'm, what I'm pleasantly surprised by, and I think this, these are some of the things that account for the willingness to preempt California, to preempt the states, is uh, that uh, this, this bill is pretty robust when it comes to uh, data uh, use collection and sharing um, in terms of, you know, putting boundaries of you know, necessity, proportionality, limited purposes, and, and you know, creating a, a list of categorically permitted purposes and, and you know, some excluded purposes. So, you know, that is a fundamental change in the, the information sharing ecosystems that exist today. It's a fundamental change in allowing businesses to set their own rules, which is how the the notice and consent and privacy policy system has operated for these past 20 years. Um, uh, and goes further than California, goes further than than Colorado and others, um, you know, also in the civil rights provisions. Um, we've now got a privacy by design provision as well. And I think, in fact, that, that that incorporates some of the elements of the duty of loyalty. So, you know, as, as it was reported out of the committee, um, you know, there's a definition of privacy harm. Um, uh, and people have to take that into account. And I think in the process, Angelique, I think that, that you know, the differences are shrinking. Um, you know, the, the three corners bill, um, you know, can't, I mean, you know, where this started out, uh, um, you know, if we, we go back to the original Wicker and Cantwell bills, you know, one had absolutely nothing on arbitration clauses. One had a complete ban. Um, well, you know, the draft uh, uh, Cantwell bill that's been widely circulated shrinks down that exclusion. Um, and in the meantime, the Three Corners bill you know, has some limits, uh, you know, just for kids uh, under 17, but some limits on the applicability of arbitration clauses. So, you know, I had a, uh, a piece that I had on the Brookings Tech Tank blog uh, a few weeks ago looking at, at uh, the, uh, the House bill, um, and I called it the, the you know, narrowing... <clears throat> uh, uh, you know the, the 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 narrowing window for privacy legislation. I think that that was kind of a double meaning. Um, that uh, yes, as Omer said, there's a very short window here to get this done, but there's also shrinking gaps. Um, 
both on you know when it comes to to the the arbitration clause issue and also i think on the private right of action um you know it we allowed two years uh, uh for before california uh came into effect same thing for gdpr it's going to take a fair amount of time to get into compliance so there needs to be some some effectively sort of grace period some ramping up period uh, before uh, things take full effect. So you take two years, four years, uh, you know, I think there's room to uh, close those differences. It's like all of the bills went to uh, couples therapy and they're like, listen, it's it's not that you're asking me for this. It's how you're asking, you know. <laughs> all right, I'll work on that. Uh, Omer. Uh, just a couple of words. First of all, I, I have to say, you know, when you hear Cam like preach this it's it just it all makes incredible sense and it's you know you just see the path forward and i have to hand it to cam like for a few years now he's the ever the optimist i'm the pessimist we share some stages sometimes and i taunt him and i sort of dance around and poke him and like he stays incredibly you know resolute and he knows that we're sort of on the right path and i think lo and behold this uh, really proves it i want to say that to cam's point about the gaps shrinking even if this doesn't pass before the midterms i think like cam said a lot of progress has been made and I doubt that it will sort of roll back, you know, like at this point, the Dems gave California. I don't think they can sort of um, have a reliable argument now that this bill shouldn't preempt uh, state laws. At this point, Republicans gave a private right of action. You know, the chamber is up in arms, but I think it's done. Like any bill in the future will have that in some shape or form. And I think these are tremendous achievements. I also want to say about the state preemption, and I think um, just, you know, sort of plus one to Cam's point, privacy activists and privacy professionals, I think, should be thrilled with, with where this came out, because none of the state laws come anywhere near this law in terms of scope and breadth and depth, and this isn't just the 50 state versus, you know, one state issue. Of course, that's big, but just in terms of the substance of the law, it's, it's much more substantive. It has a lot more new sort of thinking and concepts, uh, and it, it leaves the state laws in the dust, you know, to, to use, we said at the outset that, like, for kind of strange coincidental, coincidental reasons, we're all in New England, so I'll use a skiing metaphor. If the state laws are like the little hills you can ski in New England, this federal law is like a Rocky Mountain resort, you know, it's not 3,000 feet, this is like 14,000 feet or 12,000, and I think it's no coincidence that those Rocky Mountain altitudes sometimes exceed European standards, and, you know, even compared to GDPR, 
or to the Alps, I think this law is pretty impressive on the privacy side. So uh, I totally agree with Cam there. Yeah. So let, let me just actually, I was just taking notes as, as both Cam and Omer were talking. Let me just kind of make three points uh, that that uh, that these guys raised. Um, the first is like just in terms of the shrinking of the gaps. You know, I think of the three corners and I think the room getting smaller. Right. Um, and, you know, you still have one corner that may be a little farther away, but, you know, we'll, we'll try to do what we can to get that uh, corner closer to the others. Um I think the second point is that um, in terms of this give on preemption, I think just to both Cam and Omer's points, I don't think it's really much of a give um, because the law is so strong. And so it really builds on the foundation of CCPA and CPRA. And so the idea of preempting them, I think from the consumer's perspective, you know, doesn't mean fewer protections. It means greater protections. Um, so I think that's great. And then the third thing I wanted to raise is that I just think that the professional staff um, have done such an amazing job, um, you know, in putting this together and, you know, even some of the technical things. Like one of the things that I remember um, was always an issue is that the, you know, financial sector always wanted to put in the exception uh, for GLB um, and laws like that. And so I think they've carefully worded it so that GLB continues to be the law but it's under the rubric of this legislation so that agencies can get civil penalties. And that's been a gap in GLB where there has not been civil penalties to be able to be awarded under GLB violations by, put, but by putting it under the rubric of this law um, that uh, the agencies can get civil penalties. So again, just some, you know, strokes of um, real brilliance there. And I think that um, these guys did a tremendous job on this. So kudos to the staff. Yeah, I'll agree. As someone who sat in many a very, very uh, painful uh, Senator House hearing over the past few years, I mean, I remember years and years ago, and the questions were just so off the mark of like what the actual meat of the issues were, you know, it was like, how do I use, how do I get my kid off my cell phone? And like, it was like, we're not even talking about that, sir. Um, <laughs> Senator Kennedy uh, from New Orleans gave me some really good times. Um and now the questions are so substantive, you know, and they're so nuanced and that you can tell that they have really come to the hearing having done their homework. We're not spelling out, um, you know, acronyms for people anymore. We're not talking like, you know, really, uh, overarching issues like, you know, well, what, how similar should it be to the GDPR? Like we're already in that, um, in that nuance. Uh, Cam, I do have to say to Omer's point that you, you have always been such, such a charming optimist about this. And I, I am just, a, you know, I call myself a realist, but others would probably call me a pessimist. And I, I always love chatting you about to you about it because I always felt really confident when people would say to me as someone who's reporting on the space, you know, is it going to pass this year? And I would always just say, no, absolutely not. We are so far away from that. And even back then you would say, but we're working. We're going in the right direction. I'm curious, Cam, and I know this answer might require some commas uh, or semicolons even, but are, is this the bill that you would have dreamed up? Is it pretty close to like what you've been working towards all of these years? Are you happy? Oh, I am, uh, Angelique. Uh, you know, I I remember uh, you know back when this this debate was really ta taking off, and and I announced I was going to leave my law firm to focus on my my Brookings work on on this issue. Um, and you tweeted something about you. Know, oh, Cam Carey's going to be quarterbacking uh, privacy legislation. I said, no, 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 no. You know, I'm I'm 
I'm not going to be quarterbacking. I'm going to be cheerleading. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not on on the field, um, yeah. and that's that has kind of been been my role. But you know, I've I've seen this unfolding over the the period of years because you know part of part of my role, part of what I do at the Brookings Institution is just talk to a lot of people um, and do a lot of convening of of stakeholders. You know, some publicly, some privately. Um, and, you know, we've been uh, sort of a little bit the jungle watering hole uh, for, for this. You know, different, uh, different stakeholders from different points of view can come and talk, talk honestly. So, you know, for example, on preemption, um, uh, you know, it was clear to me that that uh, Privacy advocates, consumer advocates, civil rights advocates um, were willing to have a preemptive bill if it was strong enough and recognized that you know, that's a good deal for consumers and not just businesses. To have you know, one clear national standard that applies to everybody, regardless of, of where, where they live. Um, and similarly, that, that in order to have something uh, strongly preemptive that that you know, business was was willing to deal, and you know I don't think we should overread the uh, the the Chamber of Commerce position. That was you know, a leaked draft and not their position. I mean, I'm not sure who leaked it and what their interest was, but obviously trying to send a message with that. But you know, I think on the part of industry. Uh, there is a willingness uh, to deal on the private right of action issue, um, and you know that's what we are now seeing the products of. You always know it's a good conversation when you've got metaphors about ski hills and mountains and the jungle watering hole. I mean, if you can get that into a privacy talk, things are going very well. And quarterbacking, but I just have to remark that everyone knows that back in those years, there was room for only one quarterback in Boston. And perhaps now when it's uh, Mac Jones, Cam will have a better shot at getting that role. Although he, he's been great. Well, you know, if we're going to play, play with these, these metaphors, I, I, I like the couples therapy <laughs> the one. Um, uh, I did say that one of uh, the, the pieces I wrote about this, that Senator Cantwell, who's from Washington State, uh, um, has a historic opportunity here uh, to fulfill a role that that her Washington State predecessor, uh, Senator Warren Magnuson, uh, played when he was chair of the Senate Commerce Committee, and uh, he's he's the co-author of the Magnuson. Moss Act, uh, uh, which Manisha knows well. I see her nodding on the camera, um, uh, which which you know, has had enormous impact on consumer protection and on the Federal Trade Commission. Um, uh, and you know she can uh, play a similar historic role. Uh, what I didn't point out in, in that piece was that his his motto uh, in the Senate and. Uh, as a legislator, I dig it. I also will just say uh, two things on that. Magmos, the number of times that I've been like, "Can you please explain this to me again?" To someone, I I've lost count. I don't have enough fingers. 
Um, and also, I'm so excited. What's great about having Manisha uh, on this chat, but also just knowing her in general, is she does have that deep F uh, FTC expertise knowledge. But uh, I don't have to go through FTC comms anymore. I can just go right to Manisha. And I can't tell you how much easier that is, as great as FTC comms was to me. Manisha, we talked a little bit about the aspects of the law that surprised you. We did mention duty of loyalty, but I also think it's really cool this um, this idea that lawmakers are now including dark the phrase dark patterns and more importantly the uh, ideology behind it. We're seeing it pop up in state laws. Um, can you talk a little bit about where that figures into the law and, and what you think about it? Yeah. So, um, so if you look at the definition of affirmative express consent in the law. Um, it's actually a fairly detailed definition of affirmative express consent and not like things that we've seen before. So it requires a number of disclosures and it prohibits this idea of pretextual consent. Um, and so what that means is that you can't design or uh, manipulate, quote unquote, the user interface in a way that has a substantial effect of manipulating the consumer. Um, and so I think that this inclusion of dark patterns is is a good thing. I think the thing I worry about is that some of these phrases aren't as well defined. One of the things we haven't talked about is the extent of FTC rulemaking in the bill. Um, and I have to imagine that this was maybe one of the compromises because the FTC rulemaking is actually fairly limited. Um, so the FTC can do rulemaking on things like short form notices, definition of sensitive data. There's no real overarching FTC rulemaking authority. And I do worry about provisions like uh, can't have the substantial effect of manipulating the consumer. Um, what does that mean? You know, now that I'm representing companies, um, I, I want to know a little bit more about uh, what might violate that. Would it be okay, for example, to have a button that says, I consent and remind me later? I know under some laws in, in, in Europe, a remind me later is viewed with somewhat suspicion. And is that considered a dark pattern uh, under this bill? So I think that there's some areas where the bill may maybe could use more FTC rulemaking. And I think dark patterns is one of them. Um, I think one of the nice things, I guess one of the silver linings, I would say, to the fact that this has taken this long is that the bill now includes things that we know are uh, issues for consumers, things like algorithmic discrimination, things like dark patterns, which I think wouldn't have been in the lexicon 10 years ago. And I, so I think that's a silver lining to including these things. Um, but I do think that that's an example of the difficulties of future-proofing privacy legislation. Um, you know, I was just thinking the other day as I was reading the, uh, the bill about how this would deal with Web3, for example, um, and, um, and I think, I think that there's some, some issues with privacy legislation on that. And I, I don't think that there's a perfect solution, but I think as we've all seen, and I think as we've all, we've all discussed on this podcast, I don't think the perfect should be the enemy of the good, but at the same th time, I do think there's some opportunities to, to make improvements and maybe rulemaking for dark patterns, maybe one of them. Yeah. And I will say one of the reasons I'm so interested in dark patterns now that I've read about them and understood, under, understand what that really means is that. I mean, obviously, if this law passes someday um, and becomes enforced, like you're going to have to pick and choose where you're going to choose to enforce. And I'm not sure that they're going to go straight to the dark pattern, but it's so pervasive. Like now that I know where what it is, every almost every website I go on, it's like 
except is like bright and shiny and green and the fonts, ooh, sexy. And then like the, you know, <clears throat> no, I hate good deals, you know, is the, is the other option. And you're like, well, I do like good deals. Like it's so many sites are using these and I don't even think it's always malicious. It's just like, well, we should make like, we should make saying yes attractive and they don't, they aren't necessarily thinking about from a design standpoint that you're actually like, you know, nefariously uh, intruding on someone's real choice, you know, and, and influencing what their behavior might be. So I'll just be interested to see how much that does shake up people's pop-ups if that does um, make it into the law. Well, um, the other thing I think is interesting about uh, the way this is treated is that if you look at the CPRA regulations on dark patterns, they're actually fairly prescriptive. And I think this goes to the age-old issue in legislative drafting. Do you provide certainty and clarity and predictability and make things really prescriptive? Or do you uh, make things a little more loose and flexible um, and allow uh, the FTC and others to fill in the gaps through enforcement? Maybe there's a middle ground to you know, having more rulemaking authority. So I think that's just an interesting um, uh, thing that we're going to see down the line. Omer, I want to turn to you, but I, I want to address an elephant in the room before I do, which is that um, there's a wolf howling behind you under a banner that says 10A. Is that your spirit animal or what is that? Um, when I worked at the IAPP, we had these uh, staff parties, typically around this time of the year. And for one of those parties, I can't recall, Angelique, if you were still there, but um, they made these banners for us. So this is, and it's like uh, um, Game of Thrones themed. So that's what it is. I keep it wow. yeah, as my, it's also green, as you can see. And you just said, Angelique, that you like shiny green stuff. Mm. Um, as kind of an incentive to click, I agree. So um, I see that I see you you pop up on the screen on the video, and I want to say <laughs> yes, I accept you in all your forms. Um, okay, Omer, let's talk uh, practicalities as we wrap. What does this really change if this bill passes for privacy pros? people in charge of doing privacy right at their individual companies. You know, we've already been grappling with CCPA and CPRA. And then, as you mentioned, Virginia, Colorado, Utah, Connecticut. Does this change a lot for folks? What do they need to start bracing themselves for? I think it changes a whole lot because, you know, as we said earlier, this law is much... um, broader in terms of what it touches and also stricter than any of the state laws. First of all, I mentioned the tough data minimization requirement. The law actually starts with that. Under the title duty of loyalty, it has a data minimization provision saying that you shouldn't collect, process, uh, or transfer beyond what's reasonably necessary, proportionate, and limited to essentially provide whatever service or product you agreed to. So that sounds much more like GDPR, where you're not allowed to collect data except for very limited uh, purposes. Um, Another important sort of issue here, and this is typically where the rubber hits the road in privacy laws, is the targeted advertising opt-out or opt-in. It's not entirely clear. This is where you know you can kind of see the seams 
uh, given compromises that were made between, you know, the parties among the three um, um, sides here. Um, because I, I can go into the, uh, you know, specifics, but it is very complicated to understand if it's a targeted advertising opt-out. It kind of seems that way, but then there is some language implying an opt-in in different uh, contexts. What's very clear is that for sensitive data, you need an opt-in. So this is uh, more like um, Colorado, Virginia, and Connecticut, and unlike California, actually, which is still opt-out even with uh, CPRA in Utah. And it's a very strict standard, which I think will have, you know, a profound impact on third parties and on data brokers. Uh, Manisha, Manisha mentioned the data broker registry and the global opt-out. Uh, well, with an opt-in requirement, data brokers might not even, you know, get into the game because people don't opt in generally for kind of third-party uh, um, uh, monetization of their data. And I think it's a big impediment to that uh, business model. By the way, I have a shortcut for Control F because I just I do it all the time. I, a shortcut for the shortcut? It's yeah. two buttons. No, no. What do you mean? I have like a clicker, which I use, and uh, I just click at every document that I see. I kind of control it for all kinds of stuff. That's It's a hobby. Wow. It's a hobby. Let's talk about that later. Um, okay. And then uh, we didn't mention the uh, executive responsibility provisions. These are obviously very new in the privacy context. They kind of... Uh, echo Section 404 of Sarbanes-Oxley, which was a revolution in corporate governance 20 years ago. And uh, it says that um, for large data holders, senior executives, it started with the CEO, but they already changed it in uh, one of the markups, will have to attest personally uh, to controls and reporting structures in the organization around privacy. That's a big deal. It's something we have never seen. And as you know, an executive sort of uh, personal responsibility or liability is on the line. Companies take these things very seriously. So these are kind of a few, that, there are a lot more, but a few kind of high level issues. Um, before I come to you, Manisha, so in the markup, when they changed it from CEO to senior executives, does that mean like a CPO, for example, or even lower than C-suite it does. It does specify CPO, so CPO and CISO. And by the way, I should say all companies subject to this law, which is essentially all companies and nonprofits will have to appoint a CPO. Uh, that's a provision in in this law, also a CISO. So these people still are on the hook. There was also the CEO, but in the markup, they changed that to senior executive. So, you know, but it's, it's still, this is very serious stuff. 